And welcome to this week's edition of Novak Now. I'm your host, Jake Novak, here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Uh, you can always follow me on Twitter, and I'll, I'll mention this uh, Twitter handle again later in the program, at JakeJakeNY is my Twitter handle, at JakeJakeNY. And you can find me on Facebook, Jake Novak, N-O-V-A-K is how you find me. And uh, links to a lot of things I've written, links to things that other people have written, lots of commentary. That's what you can find on the social media feeds, and I... I recommend you go there uh, for more than just a half hour a week's worth of, uh, of information and, and analysis. Uh, that last word is the one I want to talk about a little bit today, and that is analysis. Um, you know, every once in a while, I'll take a look at what's going on in the news media, the stories that are being covered and how they're being covered, and I realize that the big problem isn't partisanship. As much as I believe that most of the major news media outlets, most of the newspapers, most of the networks, most of the websites are politically biased to the point of being too left-wing and too liberal, I, I, I often forget that that's not the main problem. <laughs> there are so many other problems, and I've talked about that in other um, editions of Novak now. I've talked about how there's a geographical bias with most of the reporters and influential news organizations in either New York or Washington, D.C. There's a massive geographical bias, not only towards East Coast things, but towards major city issues, major city things that affect us, uh, those of us who live in the major cities and the environs, things like that, which is a huge problem because most of the world doesn't live uh, like that. I mean, population-wise, perhaps, but there's a big diversity of humanity that does not live in, in a major city, certainly not on the East Coast. And then there are other problems. But I realized this week that there's yet another big problem that I've known just subconsciously, or, or maybe consciously, I just haven't written about it expressly, explicitly, and that is the news media does very little news. <laughs> I mean, they'll cover a story, but they won't do any kind of analysis. They won't really provide anything other than, here's something that happened, and now let's get 15 people to react one way or the other about it, and that's it. Whereas there are lots of people out there who could write about, hey, here's how we fix a problem that we have. Here's a specific way to do it. I propose this. Uh, now, sometimes we get that, for example, every time, sadly, there's a mass shooting, you'll have someone say, well, this means we need to have gun control. And someone else will say, well, this, no, this means we need to have more armed guards somewhere. Uh, you might really disagree with the guy who says we need to have more armed guards at certain places. But at least that guy is actually providing a specific solution. Just saying we need more gun control is like saying we need more unicorns. It's really the same thing as saying we need fewer people having guns who might use them badly. That doesn't really give us any specific policy. So, but how do we get away with that? I mean, you would think, gee, how could anyone get away with just saying... We should have more gun control or we should have less crime. <laughs> you know, it's almost like a fifth grader's answer or a five-year-old's answer. The reason why people get away with that is not only political bias, it's also just, again, you have a news media in this country that doesn't really have a default mode of analyzing or proposing policy or inviting people on to say, hey, here's the specific idea, here's how it might work, and it can be a very exciting topic or it can be a topic that really affects a lot of people, but they won't do it. They won't do it. So there was a story that happened to me almost a year ago, and it really hit me in the face. I was meeting with a top member of the White House economic team, and no, it was not my former uh, co-worker, Larry Kudlow. It was one of the people just below him in the pecking order of economists working at the White House. 
uh, really accomplished guy, very, very wealthy guy. He's actually been in academia as an economist, but he's also been involved in some private business ventures, so he's made a lot of money. Uh, very, very impressive guy. And he was there to have a little informal meeting with me to talk about what the administration was trying to do about drug prices. So he was just giving me an idea of what's going on on that. And, we was just, and when I say informal, I really mean it. We were like meeting in a hotel lounge with another person, just chatting about it. And then early in the conversation, he said, you know, Jake, besides you, who out there writes editorials and columns about policy? You know, pros and cons of policy, uh, proposing a policy, discussing. And, I, and we both kind of looked at each other for a second, trying to figure that one out. And we couldn't think of anybody. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that I'm the only one writing about policy. N- not at all. Uh, people who write about policy tend to be, yes, in academia, tend to be, you'll find them in trade journals, you'll find them in medical journals. But as far as your main big newspaper, you know, open up your newspaper tomorrow, see if you find anything that isn't just, this guy's wrong, this guy's right, this is bad, this is bad. I mean, it, it, there's not a lot of solutions offered and not a lot of analysis of, hey, here's what's going on right now. And here's how it's good, and here's how it's bad, and here's how we can make it better. There's very little of that, which is just, it's just a shame. It's a shame for a lot of reasons, and I could spend a lot of time talking about why it's a problem. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to expect a lot of you to figure out why that's a problem. So what I wanted to do on this edition of Novak Now is to let you know about some of the things that I've written about in a succinct radio podcast-friendly way. Some issues that I think are out there, that have been out there, some, some of them not, not for a very long time, some of them for a very long time, although I think tonight, or in this particular podcast, uh, it's all things that have been out there for quite a while, where I have written stuff in the past, where I've looked at what's, what's worked, looked at what hasn't worked, and made some proposals that some of them are, I don't think any of them are, actually, actually I don't think any of them are original to me. These are voices that are out there that don't get into the news, don't get covered, don't get discussed. And I think there's actually only one idea that I'm going to propose on this edition of Novak now that is an original idea to to me, Jake Novak. Uh, The rest are ideas that other people have had that I've just sort of culled from a lot of different sources. And uh, in some cases, I know who the source is. In some cases, I don't because it's just kind of sometimes there's an anonymous voice out there saying, coming up with a good good idea. But I wanted to really practice what I preach here. I, when that top economic advisor at the White House mentioned that thing about policy, and we both couldn't think of anyone who regularly writes about policy, I have to admit, I started to get scared. And I thought to myself, well, you know, I've written hundreds and hundreds of editorials and columns over the years. Gee, I wonder what percentage actually are about policy or analyzing something that's going on and trying to explain it and trying to let people know something without a partisan bash fest going on. I mean, a lot of people do analysis and say, well, the reason why things are bad is because those people from the other party are so terrible. Honestly, I think I just, by the way, I think I just summarized about 90% of the editorials in America's newspapers and on websites today. Yeah, I'll do it again, just so you, in case you missed it. The, 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 the bad thing that's going on in the country is because of those other guys from the other party, and they're just, you know, they're jerks. I mean, honestly, I think I just did. I think I just paraphrased 90% of the junk that passes for editorializing and analysis today in today's news media. So I got nervous. I thought, gee, how many times have I done stuff like that? And I was really very relieved to see that over 50%, if not more than that, of what I've written over the years has been 
policy analysis, policy proposal, uh, and, and, and I know that can sometimes sound boring, but it, it's not. It's not. <laughs> I promise. I mean, I don't go. I'm not a wonk, and I don't pretend to be one. I don't go out and say, like, well, you know, here's the 15 actuarial tables you need to look at to prove what I'm talking about. I don't do that. But analysis of something that's going on in the country, I don't p- point a finger at anyone specifically over it. I just I talk about how we can make a solution. So I wanted to practice what I preach and bring that to podcasting and bring that to radio because it's so important that we do this in this country. There are people who have solutions to things. And one of the things that I think discourages in the mainstream news media, not from people, more of this, more, more analysis, more policy proposal, is the fact that, you know, the, a lot of us are thin-skinned when it comes to this kind of thing. We'll publish something and 90% of the comments will be just to, you know, pour cold water on it. No one will propose a better idea. And so people get nervous about it. Now, I have thick skin. I'm okay with people doing that. I'm not, well, I shouldn't say I'm okay with it. I I don't love that. I wish people would would be somewhat (laughs) circumspect in their their criticism of things I write. I love when people just like think they can write, I don't like this, (laughs) or you're stupid. And they have, you know, and I am always really tempted to respond like, well, with detailed reasoning like that, sir, you know, how can I possibly disagree with you? Uh, There's a lot of that. But... I, I do think that that's a big problem. I think a lot of people who would write more about policy proposals and fixing things and ways to and new and new ideas are discouraged by the fact that they know the second that they write it, lots of people will just pour cold water on it without having to put any effort into their of their own into creating a counter proposal or another idea, or most likely it'll just be it'll turn into a partisan hate fest. Someone will just say, "Well, I don't like your idea because you're not from my party." Even though nothing in your proposal, nothing in your plan has anything to do with anything, anyone running on your side or any president or, or opposition leader, the whole thing. It becomes just really frustrating. But what I wanted to do tonight was look at three major, major parts of our American lives right now that I think need fixing. That I think need fixing. In no particular order. I'm not really going in any order of importance. But these are ideas that I've written about a lot. Other people have too, but these are ideas that I've come up with, some, some of them myself, as I said. And I'd love to just throw those out there. And, I wanted, and I'll put them out on my Twitter feeds and my Facebook feeds as well, so you can see links to longer articles that I've written about these ideas, these proposals I have. And again, I'm thick-skinned, so I'm okay if you want to criticize them. But I'm, gonna ask, I'm going to ask, make a request here that I know it's, it's, it's a tough request because I know the way things work online. But I'm going to make a request here anyway and hope that maybe this works out. Hope that maybe this works out. If you want to criticize me, if you don't like my plan, if you don't like my idea, please don't say so unless you have a better idea. And if you have a better idea, feel free, and I'll be happy to keep it up on my comments on my Facebook page or in the Twitter feed. I'd I'd be happy to give you and the massive rewards that my 10,500 followers can give you. Um, I know I don't have a massive amount of Twitter followers at 10,300 and something, but they are real followers. I mean, I, 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 they survive every purge. <laughs> every time, every time they purge the phony, the phony followers on Twitter, I keep, I stay the same number. And I know I have, I have really engaged type followers, so it's great. So again, go ahead and criticize me. I can't stop you from criticizing me and just saying, you know, Hey Jake, you're stupid. I can't stop you, but I'm making an honest request here. I, I and, and a heartfelt request. If you're going to criticize Please present me with your idea that you think is better. And if you don't have a better idea, 
refrain from criticizing me just for a little while while you think of a better idea. And if you don't have a better one, yeah, maybe, maybe I do have the right idea, huh? Think about that. Think about that. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with the first of my three ideas. And these are all things, again, that I've written a lot about over the years. I'm going to provide links to longer columns and articles where I, where I go into it. But there's one that I've recently, only recently started to write about because it's starting to affect me as a father of an almost college-age child. I have two children ages 15 and 10, and, I, and the 15-year-old's in 10th grade. So I'm about a year or so away, right, from the heavy college tour pressure kind of thing. We're not, my wife and I have decided we are not going to be putting any pressure on our kids as far as that's concerned. We're just going to make sure that they do apply, and if they're not ready to apply, they do have a plan, that kind of thing. I don't really care if my child goes to a, quote, fantastic college or not. It's really not that important to me. Um, I was lucky enough to go to one, and I can tell you it has about zero to do with who I am as far as being a good or bad person. It's got a lot to do with what college football team I follow, but, but other than that, <laughs> no, just kidding. I mean, I, I don't think it has a lot to do with my character as a human being. I do think it had something to do with the, the, the things I like more than just my college football team. But that's neither here nor there. So I want to get to these proposals, these ideas that I have, because, again, there's just not enough of this in the American news media, and it's not boring. It really isn't. I think that if the American news media isn't doing policy analysis and policy proposal because they think it's boring, it's because they're boring, because they're not trying to get new ideas into the, the public debate. So issue number one for me is affirmative action. Affirmative action, which, again, nobody in the news media could say that's a boring issue. That has been a hot button, a debate topic in this country for at least 40 years when the Backey versus Carr case coming out of California uh, became an issue. That was 40 years ago. That was the late 1970s. So, and I'm sure affirmative action had its debates before that period where it started to, where that case started to make its way to the Supreme Court. But honestly, folks, th- this, is, this is an issue that's been out in the American society for a very long time. And let me try to, as fairly as I can, summarize each side's position on affirmative action. Let's, let's focus on affirmative action in college admissions. College admissions. I know there's affirmative action and other things like hiring and things like that. Let's focus this on college admissions because that's usually where the big debate is. That's where the heat comes from. So I think it's fair to summarize the pro-affirmative action argument as follows. African Americans and other minorities have been discriminated in this country for generations and generations. They, have, they don't have the tradition of academic higher learning running in most of their families. And because of that, those African-Americans who are even remotely qualified to enter an elite college should be given really preferential treatment in the admissions process. Thus, there's a certain amount of African-American students we're going to want to bring in, a certain amount of other Latino students, a certain amount of other minority students. And that's what we're going to do. And that's the right thing to do. So that, that's, I would call that the pro-affirmative action argument. The anti-affirmative action argument that I think is legitimate is, uh, and by that, by legitimate, I mean, I'm not saying this is the right argument. I'm just saying this is the, the, the public argument against affirmative action that you hear very often. And that is, yes, uh, there's been plenty of discrimination against African Americans and other minorities in this country for a very long time. But at some point, you have to decide who is qualified to go to a university and who isn't. And if someone isn't qualified to go, just because the color of their skin, uh, the color of their skin shouldn't change that. Shouldn't make it that they should be admitted when there are people who have worked very hard and would be more adapted to that. And that is no way to 
run a university based on some kind of diverse uh, collage that you've made or some kind of percentages that you've decided you want your student body to look like. You should take a look at every single applicant blind to their, uh, their finances, blind to their background, blind to anything other than the work that they've done, their test scores, essay they've written, that kind of thing. So th th those are the arguments you've heard for a long time, and these two sides just can't agree. They can't agree. They go to court and fight each other all the time. One side calls the other side racist. The other side calls the other side <laughs> reverse racism, if you want to call, that, call it that. And no one gets anywhere. No one gets anywhere. But let, what I like to do when these kind of debates happen is I like to ask myself and everyone else, what's the point of this? What are we trying to do with affirmative action? Let's just pretend someone in every university is actually incredibly good-hearted, isn't looking for political scores to be settled, and is just trying to fix something. It's just trying to improve educational opportunity. And that's what they're trying to do with affirmative action. They're trying to improve educational opportunity. And I think that people who are against affirmative action would love to see educational opportunity improved as well. They just don't want it done by typical quota system type affirmative action. So I thought to myself, wait a minute, if we're trying to improve educational opportunity, why does it have to be starting at the college level? Why not when education begins? Pre-K or K or elementary school or junior high school or high school? Let's say high school. Wouldn't high school be better, a better period to do that? But let's say K through 12, even to be even more expansive. And then I thought to myself, of all the major universities right now that are really defending affirmative action, and by defending it, I mean they're implementing it, they're fighting to defend it in the courts, spending money doing that, the whole nine yards. Schools like Harvard and Columbia and the major schools, you know, take a look at the top ten schools in endowment, you know, the, the ones that have tens of billions of dollars in their endowments and their bank accounts. And I thought to myself, why don't they take some of that endowment money, say a billion dollars each of those schools, and see how many good K-12 through schools they can open in underprivileged, underserved communities across the country where they will prepare kids from the first day they walk into any kind of formal schooling to be fantastic college students or to be fantastic students, period. Why not? Wouldn't that be a better way to solve this problem? I don't care how much of an ambitious student you are, if the first time you're getting a really good opportunity to be educated is at 18 years old, freshman year of college, geez, that's, that's probably too late. I know there's some goodwill hunting types out there, geniuses who can just read books at the library and be super educated, but most of us need some help from a teacher and especially from parents. But how many schools do you think Harvard could set up with a billion dollars? Let's go crazy and say it would cost $100 million which I think is a ridiculously large amount of money. But let's go crazy and be super, super cautious and say, no, you can't start a K-12 through school in an underprivileged area in America without $100 million. So you're telling me with a billion dollars worth of Harvard's over 30 or something like $40 billion endowment, they could set up 10 top-notch K-12 through schools in 10 major underserved parts of this country and create churn out 200, 300 graduates a year who would be super qualified for an Ivy League education, a Harvard education, obviously that's in the Ivy League, a super college students. And that's always been, uh, for, you know, that's, that's my solution. Instead of arguing about affirmative action and quota systems and all that kind of stuff, why don't you just really help these students, guys? Why don't you just really help these students? And for those of you who are against affirmative action, 
pipe down and give these schools a chance to really help people when it really counts, when they start school, not when they're finishing 12th grade. That's too late. So those, the anti-affirmative action people should just pipe down for a second, let these schools spend big money trying to help certain minorities and not worry so much about, quote, reverse racism. And the pro-affirmative action people should just pipe down about quotas and all these silly things they have to do about admissions at that late stage and stop trying to virtue signal themselves about how great they are that they admitted somebody who got a lower SAT score because he was a certain minority. And say to themselves, hey, wait a minute, this is still shortchanging me. How about you spend some of that endowment or some of the money that you spend to do affirmative action, which isn't all that much, which, <laughs> ding, 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 that should ring a bell in your, in your head about why they love affirmative action. It's pretty darn cheap to do it, isn't it? I mean, sure, maybe a lot of those students need to get more financial aid, but there's money for that. But I would love to see the major universities of this country, the major elite universities in this country that so, so much defend affirmative action admissions. I would love to see them take a billion dollars out of each of their endowments and set up 10 schools each to help, these un- to help that get close that education opportunity gap and see where that goes and see where that goes. And until they make that kind of a commitment, until they make that kind of commitment or something like it, I don't believe them. I just don't. I don't believe those universities really want to close an educational opportunity gap. I think they want to virtue signal themselves. I think they want to say to their parents and their and older generations and people who they think are racist or whoever or, or pe- people who they don't like politically and say, we don't care what you say, we're going to admit these people. Okay, admit, th- admit them. How about, giving, how, how about giving them a chance with all the money that you have and all the educational expertise you have? How about giving them a chance at an education right when they start school as opposed to when they're sort of ending it? How about that? So that's my proposal. That's been my proposal as a better form of affirmative action for a long time. Again, you want to throw a rock at that idea, go ahead, but give me another idea. Give me another idea if you're going to throw a rock at that. Now I want to talk about public transit. For those of you listening on the Long Island Railroad, New Jersey Transit, one of the subways, this is for you. I'm one of you. (laughs) I'm on that Long Island Railroad train and sometimes on the subways all the time. I'm with you. I'm part of you, and I've suffered just as much as anybody. And for years, we keep hearing about how this doesn't work on public transportation, that doesn't work in public transportation. When was the last time you had anyone come and sit down and say, hey, uh, there is a country that actually has more people, uh, I should say a city, there is a major city in the world where there are a lot more people riding public transportation than even New York City. And guess what? It's a fantastic system. They don't have major problems. They don't have crashes. They don't have widespread, widespread pollution. They don't have ma- major delays. They have safety. They have really good safety record. What city am I talking about? I'm talking about Tokyo, the large Tokyo metropolis. Now, that alone infuriates me. The fact that you have so few articles and columns or web, web pages out there in America. You know, we have this huge rush of population in America to the major cities right now. The populations of our major cities are getting bigger. The rural, the rural population is shrinking, starting to accelerate because millennials and younger Americans are, are flocking to the cities like never before. And so our public transportation, our mass transit systems are really getting taxed right now. By that I mean with people, with a lot more people riding them. And I can count on one hand the amount of times I've seen in the last 20 years in a major newspaper or news organization any kind of write-up about how great it is in Japan. It's amazing. They just, it's almost like the news media doesn't want to tell us about where things work. 
that their bias towards negative stories and frightening us and angering us is so strong, they don't even want to tell us about where, where it works well. Well, it works well in Japan. And by the way, if you, in case you think this is a cultural thing, it didn't always work well in Japan. It's really only been working well in Japan for about 30 years. They had very similar problems on their mass transit trains and things like that in, Japan, in Tokyo that we had in the United States, with the exception of major crime. They didn't have major crime, but they had pollution, they had breakdowns, they had infrastructure issues up the wazoo. So what happened in, 19, in the late 1980s that turned it around? Okay, what happened and what is the solution that I have or something that will make things better? I'm not saying it's a panacea, but close. <laughs> they privatized their public transit. They privatized it. Now, when I say privatized, it's a little, it, it, it needs to have an asterisk. Because what the government of Japan did is they created a private company. They said, you know what, we're not running this anymore. We're going to create a private company and they will have their own employees. And you know, we're, we're going to appoint the first, the first people who will run it. But from now on, it'll be private. Now, it's, it's an asterisk because not only was it created by the government, but also it's still not 100% a private company. For example, it can't go out of business. Real companies can go bankrupt, obviously, or go out of business. Uh, the, Japan, the Japanese government will never allow these private companies that they've set up to run their transit systems to go bankrupt. So it's a little bit, you know, it's not quite truly private, but it's darn close because political appointees don't run it. Pol- politicians can't you know, pretend that it's, you know, he can't say, hey, uh, I did something great. It's got nothing to do with that. It's run by private you know, executives who make profits and, and, and salaries based on the ups and downs of the system. And the system runs fantastically. It's clean. It's been safe. Gets crowded. Gets super crowded. But that only increases the interest in building more service. So again, I, I will put up on my Twitter feed uh, today links to columns that explain this in more detail. But that's one of my major solutions. Why don't we create a private company devoid of, for example, in New York, the 18 politically appointed MTA board members who have almost no accountability because, A, there's 18 of them. There's three or four different political groups that make all these appointments. So even the politicians, including the governor of New York, don't really have complete culpability when things go wrong. I mean, it's all, by the way, that's the way it was set up. The MTA was set up so that no one can be blamed when it screws up. So what happens? There's lots of screw-ups. When you can't tell who's, who's accountable, when there's no accountability, you get screw-ups. You get screw-ups. So again, I'll provide the links on my Twitter feed and on my Facebook page to some more detailed ideas about that. And again, you want to throw a rock at me? You don't like the idea of a private company being set up or a quasi-private company being set up to run the MTA, for example? Fine, throw that rock. But give me your other, your other idea. Don't just throw the rock. Give me a real argument. Give me a real alternative. Now, I just have a couple minutes left, so I'm going to do really quickly my last idea. But again, you can get it in longer detail if you go on my Twitter feed, you go on my Facebook page, and you'll see some of the other columns. But I just want to talk about a general idea in medicine that I think we keep forgetting as a country, even though we learned it all in fifth grade or sixth grade. You know, we keep talking about how the price of health care keeps going up in this country. And I wonder if when we have these discussions, because you certainly don't see this idea thrown into the mix when people talk about it in the news media, or you rarely do, I, I, I guess it might happen sometimes. But, you know, we talk about the rising cost of healthcare, and we seem to forget that little law that we learned, or that little rule that we learned in elementary school, I hope you learned it in elementary school, called supply and demand. Medicine in this country, the price of medicine is going up because the supply is going down. It's one of the reasons we have a problem. We have fewer doctors in this country than we need. 
And I know we got a lot here in New York, and I know you got a lot probably in a major city that you're living in. Throughout the country, there are some doctor shortages already, and it's getting worse. And guess what? It's not a surprise. If you are someone studying to be a primary care physician, the chances of you making a kind of a living that justify the kind of work that you put into it and the debt that you're going to go through (laughs) are slim. And let me say something else that you don't hear so much here when we talk about this problem in this country. I'm going to say it straight up. We make it too hard to be a doctor in this country. Now, I don't want a bunch of quacks, and I don't want a bunch of people who don't know what they're doing in the operating room. Don't get me wrong. But we still make it too hard to be a doctor in this country. We make it too expensive. We make it, we make, for example, students in college get almost perfect grades all the way through, which I just don't think is necessary in everything. And we make it too hard to stay a doctor because they have to take massive tests every couple of years that cost a lot of money and time. So again, I'll post more of the details on this on my Twitter feed, but it's supply and demand, folks. These are my three issues that I want to talk about tonight that I wanted to talk about in this edition of Novak Now. I'll speak to you again later, and we'll have more of my policy solutions. Thank you.